before we read our text, let's uh, beseech the Lord for his mercy. O sovereign and holy God, we do bow our hearts before you this morning and confess that you are God, and we stand in need of your grace. O Father, as we just sang about these ancient words that are true, that impart life, the living word of God, we do desire, Lord, that you would bless the exposition of these ancient words and quicken them to our understanding and apply them to our lives by the power of your Holy Spirit. We do pray, Lord, that we would not leave here unchanged or unimpacted by the power of your word, but we do pray, Father, that you would instruct us that you would lead us, that you would guide us, that you would convict us, that you would renew us, that you would pardon us, that you would purify us, Lord, that you would invigorate us and empower us, Father. And we do pray, Lord, that your spirit would work with conviction upon the hearts of any and all those who do not know you with a genuine saving faith. We pray that you would Show them, Father, something of your holiness and of the glories and excellencies and majesty of Jesus Christ, that you would draw their hearts to you and show them the excellence of Christ, that they may put their trust in him. And we do pray, Father, that you would indeed give us all a greater glimpse of the majesty of our Lord Jesus Christ through the majesty of Holy Scripture. Father, we do pray that you would be glorified and that you would help us all as we exposit and seek to receive your word, that we would do it faithfully and without deviating, and that we would remain, Father, faithful to the text. In Christ's name, amen. Romans chapter 7. And our text this morning will be verse 13. Uh, but for the sake of context, I, I would like to just go ahead and read the whole chapter because we'll be interacting a bit with uh, the argument of the, the apostle in this chapter and seeking to follow his uh, flow of thought. So Romans chapter 7. I'll be reading from the New King James uh, if you have another translation, you, you can follow along in that. Romans chapter 7. Or do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives? For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband. So then if, while their husband lives, she marries another man, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, so that she is no adulteress, though she has married another man. Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God." For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. But now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would have not known sin except through the law. For I would have not known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment, which was to bring life, I found to bring death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it killed me. Therefore, 
the law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good. Has then what is good become death to me? Certainly not. But sin, that it might appear sin, was producing death in me through what is good, so that sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice, but what I hate, that I do. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. But now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good, I do not find. For the good that I will to do, I do not do, but the evil I will not to do, that I practice. No, if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. I find then a law, that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin." So says the word of the living God. Well, why did Jesus Christ come to this world? He said the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And another place in the Gospel of Luke, he said the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. Anselm of Canterbury in the medieval era wrote a famous book called Why the God-Man. And he was seeking to address in that book precisely that question, why did God become a man? Well, in the words of Augustine, the Son of God became the Son of Man in order to make us the sons of men and to sons of God. Christ clothed himself with flesh in order that he may clothe us with his spirit. He bore our curse upon that tree in order to give us his benediction. He suffered our death to give us his life. And in the words of Matthew 121, when the angel appeared to Joseph in a dream and indicated to him the name by which he would call that holy child who was miraculously conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit in the womb of the virgin, the angel said to him, she will bring forth a son and you shall call his name Jesus, which means the Lord is salvation. And he was called that because he is the Lord come to accomplish our salvation and because salvation is indeed of the Lord. It's the work of the Lord. It's not the work of man. And then the angel said, for he will save his people not just from their sorrows, not just from eternal punishment, not just from a lack of purpose in this life, but he will save his people from their sins. That's why Christ came, to rescue us from sin, to redeem us from that woe and from that despair. That's why he became a man. So to understand the glory of the salvation which we have been given in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have to understand something about the nature of the sin from which he delivers us and rescues us. Uh, it's, it's like J.C. Ryle said in his famous book on holiness. In the first chapter of that book, he starts out talking not about holiness, but about sin. And he says, in order to construct a great building in our understanding, in order to erect this edifice, as it were, of the holiness of God in our 
a conceptualization of it in our own minds. First, we got to dig deep and we got to lay a proper and solid foundation. And he seeks to do that by talking about, <laughs> of all things, sin. In order to understand salvation, we have to understand sin because we have to understand what it is that we're rescued from. So what is sin? Well, the nature of sin, according to Scripture, is defined by the law of God. What we believe about sin and what we believe about the law determine what we believe about the gospel. There's a lot of believers today who think the law of God is not very relevant for the Christian life. They think the law of God was for the old covenant and and the new covenant, there's no more law, it's solely grace. Well, the fact is, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, by virtue of the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ alone. And salvation is indeed all of grace. But the new covenant does not abolish or abrogate or annul the law of God in the least degree. So to understand the gospel, to understand grace, to understand the salvation of Christ, we have to understand sin. And to understand sin, we have to understand the law of God. And hence the apostle here in his great uh, Magna Carta, as it's been called, of the New Testament, his, uh, his magnum opus, his, his great epistle to the Romans, where he spells out in great detail the gospel of God well, it's precisely in this book where he so extols the wonders of God's grace and glories in the gospel that he delves so deep into the doctrine and theology of the law. And we see that here in the seventh chapter. Again and again, the apostle is speaking of the law, the law, the law of God. The Puritan John Bunyan, who wrote uh, Pilgrim's Progress, he said, quote, He that is dark... And when he says dark, he means lacking understanding. He that is dark as touching the scope, intent, and nature of the law is also dark as to the scope, nature, and glory of the gospel. And also he that hath but a notion of the one will barely have any more than a notion of the other. So if we want a thorough, robust, and profound understanding of the gospel of God, we have to have a thorough and robust understanding of the law of God. Well, the fact is, without sin, the gospel wouldn't be necessary. But without the law, the gospel wouldn't make sense. So in our text here in Romans 7.13, the apostle seeks to unmask and expose sin for what it is, to show it in its true colors. And he does this in order to exonerate the testimony of the law of God. And, and when I say exonerate, what, what I mean is to clear the law of God from any false accusations that men would, would uh, raise up against it. And so as he seeks to exonerate the testimony of the law, he does so to shed greater light on our understanding of the gospel. So note that in our text, here the apostle is continuing the argument that is uh, previously commenced. There's a series of questions and answers and a, a kind of a dialogue in which the apostle's going back and forth to expound on the, the concept that he's treating here. And chapter 7 provides an overview of the relationship between the law and the new covenant Christian. In verses 1 to 6, the apostle explains that we are freed from the law as a covenant of works. And he uses this analogy of being married to the law and then having died through the body of Christ so that we are joined to another, so that we're placed in union with Jesus Christ, so that in union with Christ we would bear fruit unto God, fruit that was impossible for us to bear unto God as we were bound in the condition of sin in the flesh under the law as a covenant of works. And so, in other words, if we are in Christ the apostles' teaching, 
the apostle is teaching that if we are in Christ, our own law-keeping is not the basis for our acceptance with God. We have died to the law through the body of Christ. That's verse 4. Through our union with Christ and his death and resurrection, we have died to the ultimate legal and judicial claims that the law of God has over us for our justification in the sight of God. The law of God stood over us and it condemned us. It exposed our sin and it declared God's just judgment upon our sin and our sinfulness. Now, it's important to note that we have not been freed from the law as a standard of ethics. The law of God is not abolished. It does remain authoritative, and it does remain in place. It was a sin to lie and to steal and to murder under the old covenant, and those things continue to be sins under the new covenant. The moral law of God is immutable, which means it does not change because it reflects the nature and character of God himself. So we've not died to the law as a standard of ethics, as a standard of right and wrong, but praise be to God, we have died to the law as the basis of our acceptance before God. And so we have been freed from the necessity of observing the law, keeping the law, obeying the law, in order to commend ourselves to the approval of God. And that's good news for us because none of us have kept the law of God. And indeed, not even the holiest saint on the face of the earth, I don't care how long they've been in the faith, how devout they are, how advanced they may be, and the grace of sanctification, there is no saint on the face of the earth that abides a single day of perfectly keeping the law of God and thought, word, and deed, and motive, and secret thought, and action, and, and, and so forth. So the apostle says we've died to the law. Well, this gives rise to the foreseeable objection of verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? B because the apostle uses strong language. I mean, he, he says we have died to the law. He's portraying the law as if it were something negative. And Paul uses this strong language frequently in his epistles. For one, because he's combating what we call the Judaizers. Uh, these Jewish professing Christians, they claimed to believe in Messiah Jesus Christ, but they were insisting that in addition to believing in Christ, one must observe certain statutes of the Torah or be circumcised or keep certain aspects of the law of God, especially the ceremonial aspects of it. And Paul is combating that heresy, which is a damnable heresy because Ultimately, as he says in Galatians chapter 1, to teach that we're justified by faith in Christ plus the works of the law is another gospel. And so the apostle is using strong language in order to clarify the fact that we are not accepted before God on the basis of our own law keeping. So what shall we say then? Is the law sin? Well, Paul, if we've died to the law, if we're no longer united with the law, if the law does not enable us to bear fruit to God, then is the law evil? Is the law bad? Is the law sin? So Paul realizes that his emphasis on the revelatory function of the law by which it exposes and condemns sin seems to cast the law in a negative light. So then is he saying that the law is sin? Should the law be rejected? Is the law the enemy of the Christian? Well, his answer, certainly not. This is an emphatic, concise negation. The law bears no affinity with sin whatsoever. To the contrary, the law is radically opposed to sin. That's, that's what he's saying. The law reveals sin, denounces sin, exposes sin, condemns sin, abhors sin. The law proclaims pure curse, pure destruction, death, even damnation upon any and all sin. 
The law offers no mercy upon sin, but only pronounces divine disapproval and judgment upon it. So the apostle is teaching that the law is not aligned with sin. The law is not allied with sin. The law is not amicable to sin, but the law is antithetical to sin and stands in opposition to sin in every way. So Paul will ultimately counter the objection of verse 7 with the summary statement of verse 12. And look with me there. He says, therefore, this is a summary statement. So so he's summarizing in in concise words uh, one of the main points that he's making. Therefore, the law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good. Now, when he says the law, he means the moral law of God summarized in the Ten Commandments. You're studying the the Ten Commandments in Sunday school. Well, uh, another name for the Ten Commandments is the Decalogue, which literally means the Ten Words. The moral law of God summarized in the Decalogue, because that's the context, that's the law that Paul's talking about. And uh, just to demonstrate this, uh, look with me at verse 7. He said, in the latter part of that verse, for I would have not known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. Well, there he's quoting the 10th word of the Decalogue. That's the 10th commandment. And so we know that he's referring to the 10 commandments as the summary of the law of God in the immediate context here in chapter 7. So that's the law that is holy and just and good. It's the polar opposite of sin. It's holy because God is holy, and the law is the transcription of God's holy nature. The law is just because it constitutes the perfect standard of right and wrong. And the law is good because it reflects the goodness of God. That's the note on which uh, Paul ends in verse 12. Far from being bad, the law is good. Now, this does not mean only that the law is morally perfect. Of course it is. Uh, but it goes beyond that. The, the law is good, he says, uh, in that it reflects the goodness of God. The Greek word used here is closely related to the one used in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 22, where it says that the fruit of the Spirit is goodness. In other words, the law speaks of the goodness of God, or what we call the benevolence of God, the kindness of God, the goodwill of God of God. The law has a benevolent purpose and its function is subservient to God's good and benevolent purposes in the world. The law's function is most honorable. It is upright and it reflects God's kindness. And that's important. That's an important point that the apostles making here, is it not? Because I don't know about you, but when I tend to think about the law of God, my flesh is rather averse uh, to the concept of the law, and I tend to uh, think about the law in my own mind in negative terms. The, the law is against me, but Christ is for me. The, the law is opposed to me, but, but, but the gospel is, is, is my friend, and, and, and so forth. And Well, the Apostle Paul comes along, and he corrects some of the imbalance in that understanding by saying that the law does indeed reflect Uh, the the goodness of God. And and so here's the question that arises. How do we harmonize verse 12 with verse 10? How do we put those together? How does that make sense? Because verse 10 says that the law, the commandment, brought death. That it brought death. And death is not good. Death is bad. So the law is good, but the law brings death, and death is very bad. In fact, 1 Corinthians 15.26 says, The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. And so death is an enemy. Death is an adversary. And we know that because we see it all around us, and we even feel it working within us as the operative principle of death. 
buffets our humanity and drags us down. And we all know it, do we not? There is no joy in death. There's no virtue in death. No goodness in death. So if the law delivers death, how can the law be good? In the words of verse 13, has then that which is good become death to me? Has the good law of God become death to me? The apostles answer, verse 13, certainly not. But sin, that it might appear sin, was producing death in me through what is good. Now notice that little preposition, through. Through, it's an all-important word in this verse. Sin, that it might appear sin, was producing death in me through what is good. And that word, as it's being used here, speaks of the instrumentality of the thing. In other words, the law is not the originator of death. The law is not the reason for our death. The law doesn't work death causally, but rather the law works death instrumentally. So when we observe the catastrophic consequences of death's reign of terror in the world, we should never point our finger at the good law of God and cast blame upon it. Because the culprit of all our misery is not God's good law, but it's our own tragic sin. So what is it that causes death? Well, in the words of the apostle in chapter 6 and verse 23, the wages of sin is death. Not of the law per se, but of sin. So sin produces a bad death through a good law. And this fact does not incriminate the law in the least degree. It only incriminates all the more sin itself. Because it demonstrates that sin is so bad that it can take something so excellent and virtuous as the law of God and use it to work its evil. So the law is the transcription of God's holiness. It's the perfect standard of right and wrong. The law is holy and just and good, but sin is so heinous. Sin is so evil. Sin is so bent on destruction that sin takes this good, holy instrument and uses it as a sword to pierce us through with sorrows. Uses it as a weapon to destroy. That's what the apostle's saying. One commentator by the name of Robert Haldane said, How evil must that thing be that works the greatest evil through that which is the perfection of righteousness. Well, there's two ways that sin utilizes the instrumentality of the law to work death in us. In the first place, sin uses the law which was meant to bring life that's what he says in verse 10. The law was meant to bring life. Well, sin uses the law to bring, instead of life, condemnation and destruction and despair. Originally, the law was meant to protect life. When Adam and Eve were placed in the Garden of Eden and they were made in the image of God and the testimony of the law was written upon their heart and they had an innate knowledge of the law of God. The Ten Commandments, as it were, were transcribed upon their conscience and upon their heart. The law originally revealed God's will and the covenant of works, and it was annexed with a promise. And the promise was to be conducive to immortality and glorification and eternal life. If Adam would persevere in obedience to the terms of the law of God and perfect obedience, then he would have attained to the fruit of the tree of life and he would have ate that fruit and been sealed in eternal life and immortality. So the law that was written on Adam's heart was to life, to, word, to use the words of the Apostle Paul. It was, it was for life. It served the purpose of, of safeguarding that life that Adam enjoyed in communion with God. We can picture it like a guardrail, right? If you're on a, 
in a skyscraper and you go out on a balcony and there's a guardrail there. Well, the guardrail on a balcony is meant to preserve and protect life. Well, that's kind of like what the law of God does. But then sin comes along and sin takes that guardrail and rips it apart and uses the bars of the guardrail to beat us to death. Well, that's not what the guardrail was meant for, but sin came along and perverted its good purposes and utilized it as a weapon to work death and evil. That's, that's what's going on. So ultimately, sin takes advantage of the law and uses it to kill. Sin uses the, the, the law to deprive us of all the good that the law was originally designed to protect. The second way, the second way that sin utilizes the law instrumentally to work sin and death is that sin uses the law to intensify its own strength and to act with all the more rigor and energy. Look at verse 8. It says, But sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. And when he says sin was dead apart from the law, he doesn't mean that there was no sin in him apart from the law. We are born and conceived in sin, and the apostle teaches as much in in chapter 5, just prior to this in the letter to the Romans. What he's saying is sin was dead is that he had no real consciousness of sin. Sin was not really present in his mind. It didn't weigh upon his conscience. Uh, the apostle wasn't groveling under a sense of his guilt. He was not awakened to his sinfulness apart from the law. He was rather ignorant of sin. He had a superficial view of sin. You know, our Lord deals with that in the Sermon on the Mount. Well, these Pharisees and Sadducees so boasted in the law of God. They were the rank legalists of the day, right? And they boasted about how they loved God's law and kept God's law, and that's really what all their stress and emphasis was on. And then our Lord comes along in the Sermon on the Mount, and he says, well, don't think I came to abolish the law. I came not to abolish, but to fulfill. And then he goes on in the sermon, expounding upon the height and the depth and the breadth and the demands of the law of God. And What does he do there? Well, he demonstrates to the Pharisees and the legalists that with all their boasting that they kept the law of God, that they did not, in fact, keep the law of God at all. He he opens up the spirituality of the law of God, and he demonstrates how the Pharisees had a superficial understanding of the demands of the law. That's what legalists do. They lower the demands of the law so that they can attain to the standard of the law and keep it by the willpower of the flesh. And then they congratulate themselves that they've kept the law when really all they've done is pervert it and misuse it. Well, the apostle was once a Pharisee, and prior to his conversion, that was indeed his state. Apart from the law, sin was dead. He he was not awakened to the sinfulness of sin because he was not yet awakened to the breadth and robust demands of the law of God in all its spirituality. So sin comes along, and sin uses the commandment to produce all manner of evil desire, the apostle says. So the law, by forbidding sin, stirs up our willfulness and provokes our inherent propensity to rebel against the commandment. And we seek to do that as an autonomous expression of our own liberty. It makes us feel powerful to disregard and disobey the commandments of God. Man's feigned quest quest for Godhood. Man wants to be upon the throne. Man wants to determine his own will, his own standards of right and wrong. And so man disobeys the commandments of God. The the law comes in and says, don't do this and don't do that. And man says, well, who's God to tell me what I can and can't do? I'm I'm, going to do what I want to do. And so the very commandment comes in and it creates, it stirs up a consciousness of sin, and it provokes that inherent rebellion in the heart of man. You know, it's like the, uh, 
in, in, in the cartoons, if, if you've ever seen, like in the children's cartoons, where you know, there, there's a, a man sitting in some kind of a commando area, and there's a big red button, and he's told, don't press the red button. Whatever you do, don't hit the red button. And then he infatuates with the red button. The red button becomes all-consuming to him, and, and, and he obsesses over the red button, and, and, and he can barely restrain himself from the curiosity of, of pressing the red button to see what it does. Well, if he presses it, it gives him a sense of liberty. It, it makes him feel powerful. Well, that's kind of what it's like with the commandments of God. The commandments of God say, don't press the red button. Don't disobey God. And our innate sense of rebellion says, I want to do it. I really, really want to do it. And that's what the apostles say. So sin makes use of the law to entangle us even more, to strip us of the very righteousness and holiness that the law itself reflects and was meant to uphold. And that's why 1 Corinthians 15.56 makes this curious statement. The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. The strength of sin is the law. And so those are the two basic ways that sin utilizes the commandment to become exceedingly sinful. Sinful. The corruption of sin that so perverts the good law of God and uses it to serve its evil purposes appears. That's what the apostle says. Verse 13. Sin that it might appear sin. You see that word? That means that it might be shown to be sin, that it might manifest itself as sin, that it might be exposed for what it truly is. It manifests itself and becomes evident. Sin shows itself in its true colors. It is exposed as to its wicked nature, its vile reality, and its tragic potency. It is brought to light and unmasked, and its hideousness is discovered it shows itself in its profound opposition to God. Oh, sin loves to hide. Sin loves to deceive. Sin loves to paint itself over, to sugarcoat itself. We tend to trivialize sin. We tend to justify sin. We tend to excuse our sin and rationalize our sin and to diminish the gravity of sin. And what the law of God does is come in and it strips us from all this rationalization and self-justification. And the law of God exposes sin for what it truly is. And this is what happened to Paul in his conversion. That's why he says in verses 9 to 10, I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment which was to bring life, I found to bring death. When he says he was alive once without the law, he doesn't mean that he abided in a state of spiritual life. He was actually spiritually dead. But he's talking about his condition prior to being awakened by Christ on the road to Damascus. And what he's saying is that as far as his own reckoning was concerned, he was alive. In other words, he was self-righteous, and he thought he had spiritual life with God. He thought he was okay, but he wasn't. And then the commandment came, and sin revived, and he died. In other words, he saw himself as under the death penalty of God's just judgment on account of his sin, even though he was externally blameless as a Pharisee. That's what he's saying. And when the commandment came, what the apostles describing there is not the first time that he ever read about the commandment or heard about the commandment because he grew up uh, raised as a Pharisee under the tutelage of the greatest rabbis of the day. He had memorized the first five books of the Torah as all Pharisees did 2,000 years ago. He was very conversant with the contents of Scripture, and yet he says one day the commandment came. In other words, one day the commandment burst forth upon his conscience. One day his, his mind was flooded with the light of the holiness of Jesus Christ. And he saw the magnitude of Christ's holiness and righteousness. And in the light of that, he saw the magnitude and depths of his depravity and sinfulness. That's what happened. The commandment burst forth upon his conscience with force and clarity. 
He came to understand the spiritual nature of the law and the height and depth and breadth of the law's, of the law's standard. In other words, this happened, sin became exceedingly sinful, and he saw it for what it was precisely when he saw the blazing light of the holiness of God on the road of Damascus. That's when he had an experience uh, analogous to that of uh, the prophet Isaiah. Remember, remember Isaiah chapter 6, where he saw the Lord high and lifted up. And what's the first thing he exclaims? Woe is me, for I am undone, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And When Isaiah saw the holiness of God, he was awakened to a sense of his own lack of holiness. The same thing happened with the apostle when his mind and his conscience suddenly were awakened to the true meaning and significance of the law of God in his conversion. So God awakens people to the sinfulness of sin so that they, so that we, despairing of all righteousness in ourselves, may cry out for God's grace in the gospel. And this teaches us something very important, brethren and friends. Very, very important. When God shines his light into our hearts, he gives us not only the knowledge of himself, but in the words of Calvin in the Institutes, he also gives us the knowledge of ourselves. Of ourselves. And the knowledge of ourselves includes knowledge of the sin that is so intertwined with our nature so as to corrupt us to the core. With greater light and greater spiritual discernment comes an increased and greater awakening to sin as sin. With growth in the knowledge of true holiness, such as the law manifests, comes growth in our discernment of and sensitivity to sin. So, dear friends, I want to ask you, have you ever saw your sin for what it really is? Has the commandment ever came to you like it did to the apostle? Sadly, the sinfulness of sin is a much neglected subject in contemporary evangelicalism, but it's not neglected in the Bible. From Genesis to Revelation, it's one of the most prominent doctrines of Scripture. So how does the word of God testify to the exceeding sinfulness of sin. Let me just give you a bird's eye overview in just a few minutes of what scripture teaches about what sin is. First of all, the titles and proper descriptions of sin demonstrate its exceeding sinfulness. To sin is to fall short of God's glory. And insofar as God's glory is the greatest and most excellent, infinitely worthy thing in the universe, sin is correspondingly a crime of infinite magnitude because it's committed against an infinite, infinitely worthy God. Sin is transgression of God's law, 1 John 3, 4. Sin is lawlessness, iniquity. It's the anarchy of the autonomy-seeking creature and rejection of God's authority. Sin is, 1 John 3, 8, the work of the devil. All sin is satanic, it's demonic, it's sinister. Sin is, in the words of Romans 1.18, unrighteousness. Isaiah 1.2, it's rebellion. Sin is insubordination against the government of God. Sin is betrayal. To sin is to be unfaithful and disloyal to the covenant of the creator, Hosea 6.7. Sin is, in the words of Proverbs 5.23, foolishness. Sin is irrational, insane. It's the absurdity of absurdities. It's as one theologian called it, the ultimate psychosis. Sin is, in the words of John 1.5, darkness. Romans 8.7, sin is enmity. Isaiah 5.20, sin is perversion because it calls evil good and good evil. It corrupts and perverts God's good moral order. Sin is, in the words of Proverbs 6.16, Abomination, something vile, repugnant, hateful. But not just the titles and descriptions of sin in Scripture, but consider also its effects and consequences, which demonstrate its exceeding sinfulness. Sin, Jesus says in John 8, 34, enslaves its victims. 
He who commits sin is a slave to sin. It, it, it enslaves the mind, the will, the affections. Sin conforms the image of man who was made in the image of God to the image of the devil in part because it results in that the devil becomes the father of the ones who practice sin, John 8, 44. To practice sin is to resemble Satan. Sin results in spiritual death. Ephesians 2, 1, we were dead in trespasses and sins. Jeremiah 13, 23 teaches that it results in moral inability to work righteousness in the sight of God. The sinner, due to his sinfulness and his natural condition, Scripture teaches, cannot know God, cannot please God, cannot love God, cannot believe in God, cannot even seek God. Sin corrupts the whole nature of the one who commits it, resulting in a radical depravity. It corrupts one's whole being. 2 Corinthians 7.1, flesh and spirit become tainted with what it calls filthiness. The body is a body of death, Romans 7.24. All the faculties of man's being become corrupt on account of the power of sin. And consider also, in terms of the consequences of sin, the judgment that God has pronounced upon it, which is nothing short of eternal hell. The terrors of hell testify to sin's exceeding sinfulness. Why? Well, because God, as a just judge, prescribes to sin precisely what it deserves. The punishment of sin does not exceed the measure of what its demerit truly warrants. We tend to think of hell as overly harsh. But God doesn't think of hell as overly harsh. God thinks of hell as perfectly just. And the reason for that difference in our estimation of it and God's estimation of it is due to the difference with which we view sin. God views sin as it truly is, and we yet do not. Well, think of hell's torments, hell's eternity. Every moment, every groan of the damned, every lick of the flame, they all testify to the exceeding sinfulness of sin. This is very serious. But not just the titles of sin and descriptions of sin and not just the uh, consequences of sin in Scripture. C consider also the relationship that sin bears before God. Sin is the evil of all evils because it is the contradiction of God who is the good of all goods. Just as there is nothing more glorious than God, so there is nothing more deplorable than the thing that detracts from his ascriptive glory. Sin believes itself to be God. If it were for sin, every sin that we commit, you, you know what we're doing. In, in essence, we are saying, I would intrude into the very throne room of God and cast him down from upon his throne, and I would usurp the throne in his place. Well, that's the essence of every sin. There's idolatry in it. All sin is opposition to God. It's antithetical to all that he is. It's contrary to the nature of God. It's contrary to the names of God. It's contrary to the people of God, to the glory of God, and to the very being of God. Sin is worse than any affliction or suffering that we could ever imagine. Do you know, think about it for a minute. If there were a man that is immutably perfected in holiness... Let's say he's, he's in a state of perfect holiness. He, he, he does not sin. He cannot sin. He will never sin. Such a man would prefer to suffer a million lakes of fire rather than commit the least sin because there is more evil in the least sin than there is in the greatest suffering. Sin is also worse than the devil. Just think about it. What else is capable of taking a holy angel who is perfect in praise and making him the arch enemy of all good, perfect in hatred. What else but sin? What else is capable of taking man, who is the image and glory of God, and making him morally worse than the most vicious beasts of the earth? I think serpents and scorpions must look at us and say, well, our venom is nothing compared to the venom that that poor creature carries around in his heart and on his lips. Our venom can destroy an animal body, but that creature's venom can destroy the entire world. Which it very well might with uh, all this imminent talk of nuclear disaster looming on the horizon. Consider also, in the last place, speaking of the sinfulness of sin, 
the testimony of Calvary, the horrors of Golgotha, the agonies of the cross demonstrate sin's exceeding sinfulness. Why? Because God didn't spare his own son on whom sin was laid. Christ was not guilty of any sin. He was the Holy One of God. He was innocent. He perfectly kept the law of God. He's the only one who ever did. And yet it was our sin that was charged to the account of the Lord Jesus Christ that so devastated his mortal frame that made him the object of the Father's fury. And no man has ever suffered like that man did upon that cross to the extremity to which he endured the wrath and the justice of God. The fierceness of the judgment that he absorbed upon the cross stands as a permanent testimony to the nature of sin and the heinousness of the sin that was imputed to him and the severity of the suffering that he endured all stand, dear brethren and friends, as a great testimony to the love of the Savior and the greatness of his grace. Just think about the grandness of his love, that he was willing to endure that out of love for poor sinners like us to suffer the imputation of a thing so horrid and the fierceness of a thing so great as is our sin and the wrath of God it deserves. So friend, have you come to understand the monstrosity of sin for what it is? Paul did. Paul did in Romans 7. Romans 7 makes clear that he came to feel the power and efficacy of sin in his very being. And then that eminently holy saint, after years of walking with Christ, still confessed that he was the chief of sinners. You see, he wasn't boasting of all his great attainments. He wasn't talking about his victories. He was forgetting the things that were behind. And he, his eye was single upon the righteousness and glory of Jesus Christ. He was pressing on ahead. He himself, he said, I, I am the chief of sinners. John Bunyan later said, I am the chief of sinners. And the only reason that Paul wrote that he was was because he never met John Bunyan. And I think the same thing about myself. Well, he confessed that he was still the chief of sinners, not because he sinned more than he did before, not because he was a slave to sin, because he was not. I mean, the Apostle Paul was one of the most sanctified image bearers of God on the face of the earth. But he confessed that he was a chief of sinners because as he grew in the knowledge of God and in the knowledge of the law of God, he grew in sensitivity to sin. And he confessed it because he trusted not in his own righteousness, but in the righteousness of the precious lamb whose blood was shed for sinners like him and like me and like you. So listen. It's one of the great paradoxes of the Christian life. Do you know what a paradox is? A, a, an apparent contradiction where, where there's two truths that are held in tension and we can't really figure out exactly how, how it works or why it works like that. But it's one of the great paradoxes of the Christian life that the more holy we grow, the less holy we tend to feel. The more we grow in sanctification, a lot of times, the less sanctified we feel. Because the more we grow in holiness, the more we grow in the knowledge of God. And the more we grow in the knowledge of God, the more we grow in the knowledge of ourselves. And the more we grow in the knowledge of God and of ourselves, the more we grow cognizant of the enormity of the gap, of the breach that exists between God and us. And yet we also grow in appreciation and esteem for the mediator who bridges that gap for us and gives us access to God and fellowship with God and causes us to be accepted. We are accepted in the beloved for Christ's sake. We are counted righteous in Christ. And so as we face the reality of our remaining sinfulness and we are awakened to that reality to greater and greater measures, we come to think less of ourselves and more of Jesus Christ. 
And that's what it means to grow in sanctification, to grow in thinking and esteeming ourselves as less and less and grow in esteeming Jesus Christ as more and more and more and more glorious and more and more wonderful and more and more full of majesty and more and more desirable and more and more beautiful and more and more the sum total of every excellent thing that there, that, 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 that there is, the pearl of great price, the treasure that it's worth just selling everything in order to acquire him. That's what John the Baptist said. He said, I must decrease, but he must increase. That's the true test of growing in grace, growing in esteem and appreciation for Jesus Christ and gratitude for his saving work and love for his person and esteem for his grace and marveling every day at his beauty and glory disclosed so wonderfully in the gospel. So let me offer some words of counsel as we bring this sermon to a conclusion here. Several things. First of all, Paul said that sin through the commandment became exceedingly sinful. Well, the commandment didn't make sin more sinful, but the commandment showed sin to be as truly sinful as it really is. It exposed it. Well, that doesn't feel like a good thing. That feels like a negative thing. So here's my advice. Take heed as the Spirit of God exposes your sinfulness to your conscience Take heed of superficial remedies that promise peace of conscience by means of diminishing the gravity of sin's sinfulness. Because that's the temptation. The temptation is, I recognize my sin, I confess my sin, but now in order to cope with my sin and to deal with it, rather than dealing with it God's way, rather than dealing with it the gospel way as outlined in Scripture, I'm just going to ignore it. I'm I'm, going to cast it out of my mind. I'm going to try to cover it up. I'm going to hide it from other people. Don't do that. Proverbs says, whoever covers his sin will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes it will find mercy. That's what the Apostle John says. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sins. For if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So no matter how exceedingly sinful your sin seems to be to your own mind and conscience, know that the greatness and magnitude and power and glory of God's grace and the gospel far exceeds exceeds the magnitude and gravity of sin. But there are those who will say, well, don't take sin so serious. Don't be so hard on yourself. Now, I admit, one can be too pessimistic. One can overreact in imprudent ways. But the fact is, we can never take sin too seriously. Our problem is not that we take it too seriously. It's that we don't take it seriously enough. And the fact is, God took sin seriously at Calvary, did he not? And he will take it seriously on the day of judgment. So better come to grips with it now and, and deal with it. Uh, young people, children, I mean, you have such a privilege growing up in the church and, and listening to the word of God and, and being under the means of grace. You really do. I did not come from a Christian background. and. I was not brought up hearing these truths, and it wasn't until I was a teenager that I was really exposed to these things. Oh, young people, I plead with you, don't waste your youth, don't waste your life, embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is no greater thing for which it is worth living. Oh, take your sins seriously. Take your sins seriously and let it drive you to the cross of Jesus Christ to take the gospel seriously. Another word of advice, take heed of failing to appreciate or appropriate scripture's true remedy for sin due to an inordinate focus on sin that obscures the amazing grace of the gospel. 
There are se several influences that cast their shadow over our ability to see grace in its true colors. And I've seen this happen with believers a lot, and I've also seen it happen with people who are in a process of struggling, and, and they're not yet genuine believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. They, they, they have no peace of conscience, and, and yet they, they say that they want to, but their sin is so present to them. Sometimes they have such failure in their past or they have such a looming sense of, of guilt hanging over them that, that they can't really see through the dark clouds of despair and they can't really enter in to embrace the grace of the gospel. And so if that's you, I want to encourage you not to allow the... The, the, the guilt of sin, the, the, the weight of, of, of the sense of guilt, don't allow it to obscure the clarity with which you, you're, you're able to see and appreciate the graciousness of Jesus Christ. There are influences that, that would prevent us and hinder us from seeing it. One is our innate pride, our inbred self-focus. Our, our own inherent pride, it's always exercising its influence, seeking to turn us inward, seeking to make us so introspective and obsessed with our own works, our own performance, that we fail to look to Christ. We become so self-absorbed and introspective that we fail to be Christocentrically extrospective, as it were. We must take to heart Hebrews 12, 2 looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Oh, remember that, dear brethren and friends. Looking to Jesus, looking to Jesus, looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Let us look away from ourselves to the only one who is worthy of our continual and all-consuming contemplation. Remember what Robert Murray McShane said, so famously, he said, for every 10 looks at yourself, or uh, I'm sorry, for every look at yourself, he said, take 10 looks at Jesus Christ. For every look at yourself, take 10 looks at Jesus Christ. And the fact is, you don't have to discern the full weight and gravity of your sinfulness in order to embrace Christ and the gospel. Do you know why? Because you never will. We never will. It's the mercy of God that we don't discern the full gravity and extent of our sinfulness. You know why? Because if we did, it would drive us insane. God tempers the revelation of his holiness to us with his grace so that we may be able to bear it. So don't think you have to plumb the depths of your despair before you can mount up on the wings of the gospel and soar with hope on the glorious wings and heights of grace. And finally, we must never, ever, ever fall into having more faith in the power of sin than we do in the power of the Savior from sin. The exceeding sinfulness of sin may be great, but the grace of God in Christ for those who trust in him is much greater. And this is what I sought to point out in the beginning, that understanding the nature of the law and the nature of sin and our relationship to them elucidate and highlight for us the glory and grace of the gospel. So remember, dear believer, the word of God plunges us into the depths of sin's true nature in order that it might then plunge us and immerse us into the depths of the riches of the gospel. Christ not only deals with our sin, but the provision of his grace in the gospel surpasses our need so as to bestow upon us unspeakable riches of grace and glory. You know what, what the apostle calls it in his epistle to the Ephesians when, when he's referring to Christ's grace. He says, the unsearchable riches of Christ. Unsearchable, unfathomable. We, we can't plumb the depths of the riches of his grace and the gospel. We spend day after day, year after year, and by God's grace, an eternity. We will spend an eternity plunging deeper and deeper into the glories of the gospel, into the love of God, into the ineffable communications of his grace and fullness and glory in the gospel. 
And so it is, as Paul said in the fifth chapter, where sin abounded, grace did abound much more. Let's never forget that. Let's pray. Oh, dear Father, how humbling it is to think that in ourselves there is nothing but cause for despair, and yet in Christ there is nothing but cause for great rejoicing that elicits our faith, that draws us out of ourselves and places us into him as our refuge. Oh, dear Father, we do ask you for the children and the youth that are here, that you would work in their lives and hearts, that you would bring them to faith, that you would confirm them and seal them with your Holy Spirit. May they know and serve Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that you would continue to bless the truth that we heard today to everybody's understanding. Help us, Father, to be not mere hearers of the word, but to receive the word, to appropriate it, to mix it with faith, and to grow thereby. Father, we pray that you would uphold us. We pray that your grace and spirit would bless everyone and go with everyone and give us a edifying day, this Lord's Day. We do thank you and praise you for the preciousness of the blood of Jesus Christ, for the greatness of his sacrifice, and for the grace that you give us, Father through this good news. May we treasure it and cherish it all our days. In Christ's name, amen.